Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome Husker Du founder, singer, and guitarist Bob Mould. Plus, we'll review the latest album from Danish pop duo The Ravenettes. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Kids falling in and out of love on the hoods of Chevys in the beds of trucks. We were stumbling our way through life till our senior year. But man, we sure did learn a lot in that Walmart parking lot. Yes, Walmart, the biggest retailer of music in the country is proposing a massive price cut on CDs. If it goes through, the top 20 titles each week will be reduced to $10 per CD. Uh, right now, you can buy a new CD, a top-selling CD, for upwards of 15 bucks. so this is a massive discount. They're talking about a five-tiered pricing plan, Jim, uh, where the top-selling CD would be 10 bucks. current titles would be about 12 there would be discounted titles at $8, $7, and $5, a massive price cut being proposed by Walmart. 25% of the CDs in the country are sold through Walmart. They carry up to 4,000 titles, but they have been reducing the number of CDs they're carrying because, frankly, CDs aren't flying off the shelves anymore at any store. i got to say, I, I like their prices, Greg. Their prices make sense. It's the sort of thing that you and I and many music lovers and many small retailers have been advocating forever. I think it's ironic that this giant big-box retailer, which is able to set the prices for every other commodity on its shelves, is now trying to talk sense to the music industry. <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing for small businesses by any means, but boy, that's the only way CDs make sense for the consumer at this point. I think a lot of the major labels, their reaction to this proposal is negative. Uh, they don't like it. They, they don't want to see prices cut on any of their products. But on the other hand, they risk losing everything here if they don't go along with this plan. In other words, Walmart could say, well, you know what, guys? We're just not going to carry CDs anymore. Right. They're, the only way to sell these things is to discount them. That way they lose 25% of their retail business if Walmart decides not to carry any CDs at all. At a time when the retail business is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking anyway. And you have to remember, the smallest portion of the pie chart of a CD's price goes to the artist. About a dollar right. if they're lucky. <laughs> you know, slightly more, a dollar fifty-two dollars goes to the retailer. All the rest of that goes to the record company. <laughs> Greg, those, of course, are indie rock darlings Arcade Fire, the band whose career was made by Pitchfork 
webzine, at least if you listen to Pitchfork. Pitchfork, for the last 12 years since it debuted, has been pretty much the uh, controlling entity about discourse, criticism, and journalism of the underground music world. They really made their mark. I can't think of a more successful rock and roll publication startup since... Rolling Stone, really, in the 60s. Now they're expanding in a big way. Starting on April 7th, been rumors for quite some time that they were going to launch a 24-hour online music channel. What MTV used to or maybe could have and should have been back in the old days when it launched on cable. Well, Pitchfork is going to put, what a radical idea, good videos (laughs) online 24-7. They're going to have archives that you can access and search. They're going to film concerts. They're going to use independent videos. They're going to put all this content online on a uh, a beta channel that's going to launch on April 7th and then be fine-tuned as it goes along. I think it's really interesting that Pitchfork, the website, the online publication or webzine, if you will, is expanding in a couple of ways. There also was a story uh, last week that they have started uh, choosing the soundtrack for video games. They did one for Major League Baseball where they uh, chose many of the artists that are going to be on the soundtrack of this video game. Of course, we've talked over the last couple of years about the Pitchfork Music Festival, which happens in Union Park in Chicago in the middle of the summer, a sort of miniature Lollapalooza, if you will. I think it's kind of troubling in some ways. I mean, either you're a journalistic and critical organization, you write news stories and you do reviews of bands, or you're a record label, and they're starting to behave like a record label, sort of. I mean, they're putting on a big concert where they book the bands. Right. They're, they're choosing bands to be on video games, and now they're going to air videos. Yeah, there's some conflict of interest is- issues here, to say the least. But I think the baseball deal is essentially a way to finance the video deal, because mm-hmm. the server space that they're going to have to pay for in order to uh, create essentially a 24-hour video channel on the internet is going to be massive. But I have to say, Jim, I like this idea for the video channel. I think it's got some intriguing possibilities. They can do a lot of extra content uh, to tie in with their written content, uh, as well as screening full-length feature movies. I I think this is a really cool idea. Yeah, they're talking Uh, about stuff like the Gigi Allen documentary, Hated, and and independent films, uh, the Pixies reunion tour movie, Loud, Quiet, Loud. I don't know, though, Greg. I mean, you know, there's YouPorn, and there's YouTube, and there's all these... (laughs) You know, why do you need to have a Pitchfork video site? Well, well, You know, this is the sort of... uh, Empire building that I don't even think Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone ever thought of. Well, who knows? I mean, here's a webzine that was started by a 19-year-old Minneapolis kid yeah. in his parents' house mm-hmm. in 1996. In a and now here he is. <laughs> the new Jan Wenner. Exactly. The new media Jan Wenner. Glad All Over from the Dave Clark Five. The reason we're playing that song, big hit in 1964 for the Dave Clark Five, is that the singer of that song, the lead singer of the Dave Clark Five, Mike Smith, is dead at the age of 64, died of pneumonia a few days ago. Very underrated band, in my opinion, Jim. I know we have uh, some disagreements about this, but I think uh, the Dave Clark Five, for a brief period of time, about a a two-and-a-half-year window there, uh, from about 64 through 66, were one of the best bands of that British invasion era. Went toe-to-toe with the Beatles on the charts at the time. They had 15 top 20 hits Mm. in a span of about two years. 50 million sales worldwide. 
18 appearances on the Ed Sullivan show. Get that, huh? <laughs> That's because they were, they were clean cut and non-threatening, unlike those Rolling Stones or even the Beatles. Well, they were, and they never claimed to be the bad boys of, of rock and roll. You were, you're absolutely right. They were clean cut, and they uh, did not come across as threatening in any way, but the sound was terrific, and I think the sound was unique in its era. For one thing, they were the loudest of the British Invasion bands until the Who came along and really uh, sort of grasped that heavy bottom-end sound in the uh, late 60s, beginning with I Can See for Miles. The Dave Clark Five were the heaviest of the British Invasion bands. The band was named after the drummer, Jim. I'm sure you're going to love that. Well, I'm in favor of any band that's named for the drummer. You know that. <laughs> and it was named after the drummer for a good reason. Dave Clark was the producer and, and, and primary songwriter, but Smith also wrote a lot of the songs, and I think he was an underrated singer. All of these British bands, they wanted to be um, R&B bands, basically. And they, they had that sort of soul edge to the vocals that Mike Smith brought to a lot of their songs. I, I would stack up their 10 or 12 greatest hits against any band of that particular era. And I'm including the Beatles in that bunch because they were all basically doing the same thing, doing American R&B, doing their version of American R&B. And I think the Dave Clark Five did it as well as anyone. And I think you can hear it particularly well on this song, Bits and Pieces from the Dave Clark Five on Sound Opinions. Bits and pieces from the Dave Clark Five in honor of Mike Smith, the lead vocalist on that song, dead at the age of 64.
that is one of 36 instrumental tracks being made available just in the last week by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails on his website, nin.com. It's a four-part album called Ghosts 1 Through 4. Reznor taking the Radiohead model that we have talked about many times on this show when they released In Rainbows on their own website a few months ago to great success. Reznor followed that formula by producing a record by Saul Williams that we talked about earlier this year, and now he's doing it with his own record. Reznor has the ability to do, to do this because he is not under contract to any label at the moment and apparently in no rush to do so. Jim, he's making this record available at five different price levels, yeah. including a free download, all the way up to a $300 box set, which was available in a limited edition of well, that, 2,500 copies. Yeah, that's not even going to ship until May 1, but he sold out all 2,500 of those boxes at $300 a box. Do the math. That's wow. $750,000 wow. that he just made, you know, whatever <laughs> the production costs are. I mean, why on earth would anybody ever need a record company again if you can make that kind of coin on your own on your website? I mean, figure it out. Even with the production costs, let's say conservatively 20 30 bucks a box, right? Mm-hmm. He's still making a half million dollars just on the box set alone. I can live with that. That's a nice little chunk of change for a weekend's <laughs> worth of work. Oh, man. So, Jim, we're we're in the middle of a revolution right now. Between what Radiohead did a few months ago and what Reznor is doing now is an indication to any artist with any kind of a pedigree what they can do with a committed fan base. Mm-hmm. The one problem Reznor had is that he got so much traffic on his website that he crashed the website a couple yeah. of times in the first couple of days. So that's the big issue that a lot of these bands are going to have to work out. How can they meet demand for these products because their fans are rabid. They're going to want it right away. It's entirely possible that you don't need a record company anymore. You just need a really good web host. (laughs) Um, Let's hear one of these tracks, Greg. This is 14 Ghosts 2 by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails on Sound Opinions.
14 Ghosts 2 by Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. A track from this new internet-only release collection of instrumentals. Greg, uh, I think there's no denying that Reznor has been pretty much on a career high since he first debuted. I don't think he's matched the excitement of, of that music until just recently. You know, Year Zero, the actual last uh, studio release he put out, was a really intricate, multi-level concept record that had pieces of it on the web and pieces in video and pieces in art and pieces of music, of course. This is is just him having some fun. I mean, these yeah. are studio outtakes. I think the most interesting part of all of this instrumental music is thinking what other people may be able to do with it if people sample it and begin to build their own tracks out of Reznor's music because I think his strength is in creating his own instruments, basically. You know, if you start to take some of these apart, there's never anything that sounds just like a guitar or just like a drum or just like a keyboard. You know, you have uh, essentially him using uh, music concrete to create his own instruments. Weird noises serving as a snare drum or or, or atuneful things that, that suddenly provide a melody. It's great stuff. I I wouldn't necessarily buy it. I'm glad to have it. I'm glad to listen to it in the same way that I would be to one of Eno's ambient records. Yeah, I mean, I think the key to this, Jim, is that it allows the fan to access as much of it as they want at a price level that they feel comfortable with. I mean, the hardcore fans are going to want all 36 tracks. They're Mm going to be with Reznor every step of the way, and he's given them that option. But if you want fewer tracks at a lesser price, he's given you that option as well. I think it's a brilliant way of empowering his fan base at the level they want to get in on it. And it's it's revolutionizing the record industry. Nothing short of that. You can get nine songs for free, or you pay $5 to get all 36. I wouldn't even say I like it enough to pay $5 to get 36, but certainly to burn it, nine songs for free, I think that that's kind of cool. Absolutely. I, I actually went you know, for the $10 option where, where you're going to get a two-CD <laughs> set in the mail at some point. I, yeah. It allows you to download the music as well. I had real trouble downloading it because the, the server was so overloaded the day I went after it. But nonetheless, it's out there now. As you said, he's made this widely available. He said, do whatever you want with it. Copy it, share it, remix it in any way you mm-hmm. want. Reznor's really got his finger on the pulse of what his fans want. And for that reason alone, I think you need to go to his website, check this stuff out, and there are $5 options for buying this thing. If you if you want to spend $5, it, it's definitely worth it. So you spent your own cash. Uh, you're saying buy it, I guess, on our patented buy it, burn it, trash it scale. I've got to go with a burn it. After a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to be back with an interview and a live performance from Bob Mould.
please listen to me and don't disagree. Even as we fight, it doesn't matter to me. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times, and we are thrilled to welcome Bob Mould to the studio. Welcome, Bob. Welcome. For those of you who don't know, this man has been making music for about 28 years, at least on a professional level. Eight Husker Du albums. I'm not going to say where Husker Du fits in the pantheon of rock bands of the last 30 years, but uh, let's just say there was none more important. Absolutely. In our world. Oh my gosh. I'll say that. Eight solo records as well as two with the band Sugar. Bob, you've just released District Line on Anti Records. Yes. Wow. What a progression that's been. That's quite a career of music you've got, you, you have here. And what's interesting to me is that I think this record brings together a lot of the stuff that people like about your music and some of the stuff they don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the electronic elements, some people were going... Where's Bob been? Where's he going with this electronic stuff the last few years? But it's, a, it's, it's become a part of this record, and it's mixed in with the heavy guitars, the great pop songs that people uh, love about your work. Talk about that a little bit, how all of these elements have come together in your music at this point. Well, if we backtrack to 2002 with uh, Modulate, I guess my first foray into electronica, uh, sort of the culmination of three years of uh, learning how to work with samplers and loops and things. It's a record that I think caught people off guard. It caught me a little off guard. It was a, a pretty challenging piece. Jump up to 2005 with Body of Song, uh, a record where the guitars are reintroduced, a little bit more of a, a familiar setting, I guess, uh, with some electronic flourishes. And then we jump ahead to now in 2008 with District Line, a record that I think continues in the path of Body of Song, uh, but maybe even more focused on guitar as compositional tool. And I think that gives it the familiarity that people that people like. As far as you know, as far as the electronic flourishes, I, you know, I don't know. I guess people are gonna have to get used to it because those are new colors in the in the palette. Those are things in the toolbox that I'm not going to stop using. Well and it's it's interesting, Bob, because those of us who go back to with you to the <laughs> beginning, I mean I remember the outcry, the scandal when Husker <laughs> Du started introducing melody and, yeah. and not what happened to Land Speed Records. <laughs> You know, what happened? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, people have been wanting you to go back to something basically since you started. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the, the music that I made in the 80s, and I guess specifically the first half of the 80s, is important stuff, and it's good stuff. People remind me all the time how important it is, but bear in mind, that's 25 years ago, and I'm not that same person anymore. And I think people who want nothing but that, I think there's other bands who could offer that kind of sonic temperament if that's what they're into. Let's go back to when you were, what, like 18? Mm-hmm. And in your basement in St. Paul, right? Yep. And, and Husker Du was starting. You ran the record company, you know, and you guys mm-hmm. pressed your own 45s yep. and started everything. Mm-hmm. If you were 18 today, 
and had the tools that are available now, how would your life have unfolded differently? I mean, you did it the hard way. Yeah, well, the, you know, this is this is we could really go off on the generational differences. You know, I mean, now anybody in a basement with a you know with an internet connection can put up a MySpace page with four songs and pay somebody to get them a hundred thousand friends and make it look like they're really successful <laughs> uh you know i sort of did it the old-fashioned way sort of the old-fashioned religion way where you just take things door to door a single was legal tender it was a dollar it, it put gas in the tank and got a group from tucson to phoenix to austin to wherever I think musicians nowadays, I have no idea how they're able to elevate themselves above all of the dither that's happening. Well, at the same time now, Bob, you have, you know, three decades nearly of work Mm -hmm. uh, behind you. And it begs the question, why does Bob Mould even need a record company now to put your music out? Because it would seem like Mm BobMould.com, you know, you've got a core of fans that would come to that website and, 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 and pay you and download your music. Yeah, well, that's something that I actually sort of tested the waters with that in a, in a very informal way uh, a few months ago when the, uh, the, the Radiohead project was uh, foist upon us, uh, asking people if they would basically subsidize the work if given the choice to get it directly from me, you know, where, where they would pay per song or pay per album, pay for extra content. Got really good feedback from people, and most people were willing to, you know, subsidize at about $20 a year. So, I mean... If you have 5,000 people that would do that, that's a, a fairly good living to actually pay all the bills and get the work done. You know, right now with District Line, this is sort of a, it's what I call sort of an A-level record. This one warrants the tour and the promotion and the big push and all that. You know, there, there might be projects, I think, that are more personalized or a little bit more obscure that wouldn't require this much outside help in getting it up and running. And it must be hard to turn down a record company where your peers include Tom Waits and Mavis Staples and Nick Cave. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they're in some good. good company on it. I think, I think it's really good company. They're, they've been a great label so far and very, I think, very understanding of how I like to do my work. And we sort of had very long discussions about what they would do and what I would do. And so far, everything's been really good. So that's a healthy relationship between artist and, and record company. The record just came out today, so we'll see. There's plenty yeah. of time for things to go wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bob, you've got an electric guitar. Would you favor us with a song? Uh, sure. Um, let me try one off the new album. It's called Again and Again. It began sometime last week The feeling that most everything was changing for the worse And all the triggers pulled at once So begins my ugly fall from grace Again yeah. Oh, I made myself delusional A noble stab at staying upbeat It was only for a while, yeah oh, Tried my best to radiate to hurricanes and double H, yeah. The pair split into two, yeah. Talking points come up on high 
Watch me walk the ledge I am comfortable Out here by myself yeah. And you could never reach me here Words distorted in the wind Landing softly there Beneath the trees yeah. Oh, a trip to California Don't say I didn't try to warn you Put down your cell phone and try to be with me. Oh, did you see me disappear? Like vapor rolling through the hills and then uh, the silence of the Bob Mold again and again from District Line. Let me tell you, Greg, there are a few 
thrills in our career, right, that are better than sitting two and a half feet away from Bob Mould's electric guitar. I mean, maybe if it had been the old flying V-Bob, it would have been. I, I remember distinctly, Bob, you know, I mean, I got to see Husker Du in the early days at, at Maxwell's many times. Yep. And I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted mm-hmm. to express the uh, the feelings that, that that music gave me on paper. And I was struggling, struggling. And I remember distinctly a, a piece that John Perellos had written in the New York Times. And of course, he was a musicologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, studied music in school. And he yeah. wrote about this crazy thing you were doing where you were playing harmonics, uh, basically playing lead and rhythm at the same yep. time. It was as if he said you were two guitarists. And suddenly it all made sense to me. I said, wow, I want to be able to explain stuff like Bob Mould's guitar like that. Uh-huh. Well, that's sort of it. That's sort of the story. There's there's a handful of us that play like that, I guess. And that's, you know, growing up in a three-piece setting, you have to, you know, one has to learn to, to do that. I guess Townsend was really good at it. Richard Thompson's real good mm-hmm. at it. I don't know. I always consider myself a much better rhythm guitarist. Leads are for show. You know, Those rhythm are two heroes I don't think people would associate with you, Townsend really? or Richard Thompson. Huh. Wow. Townsend, I thought, a big Who fan sitting right here, you know, especially when I was a small kid. I liked the Who quite a bit. Uh, Richard's work, I, you know, somebody brought it to my attention once workbook was just about written that I should probably listen to Richard. So, mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah. you didn't come at him until you were like 30. No, I did. it was all new to me. But I mean, you know, yeah, those are, you know, those are guys I think that play in that same way as well, where there's a lot of a lot of things going on inside the uh, inside the guitar work. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting what you said about the Who, because I, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, Townsend, the relationship between Townsend and Keith Moon was a symbiotic one in terms of the relationship between drums and guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it was like lead drums, and Grant Hart in mm-hmm. Husker Du was kind yep. of a, a ma- mm-hmm. maniacal drummer. He wasn't yep. on the beat all the time. It was more like jazz drumming sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and Anton Fear on some of the solo yeah, work, yeah. and now No Slouch, Brendan Canty yeah, on Brendan, this new album. Yeah. Brendan's been fun on these two records, too. It's been really, really neat working with him. So, yeah, it's always fun when you've got uh, with good people who have their own voice and a common language. It makes for a good, a good experience. In just a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our discussion with Bob Mould and hear a special live version of a Husker Du classic. I say to you, cigarettes that I hope to dare. I'm putting all my emotions on display What I say to you Well maybe it's that time of year Would you like to see My miniature parade Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Let's go back to our talk with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Bob Mould. Mould, of course, is a founding member of the influential indie rock 80s giants Husker Du, one of our favorites ever. And he's had a successful career on his own for the last two decades. 
you know, I want to get back to the electronic stuff uh, because the uh, the modulate record, the loud mom record, mm-hmm. the monthly party that you do in Washington D.C. where mm-hmm. you're now based, the the blow off thing. You know, there there was that hard line in the sand when you started out, and mm-hmm. you were all aware of it. You know, you played a guitar, or you. You were a, a disco DJ, and yep. you were the twain shall meet. You yep. know, in, in America, that was just the culture. Yes. Um, and obviously it seeped into your consciousness and, and, and became part of your music. When did that appreciation for, for that side of it start coming for you? Well, it's been close to 10 years now. You know, in 1998, I put out a record called Last Dog and Pony Show, and the, the premise was that I was sort of putting the guitar down and retiring the electric, the electric band you know, in 99, when I was living in New York, I was just around club culture more and going to different record shops and getting turned on to, you know, house music and to techno and a lot of the trance that stuff like Sasha and Digweed and Paul Van Dyke stuff that was going on at that time. That's really where it started. The irony is not lost on me that I started making music to sort of destroy dance music or to destroy all kinds of music. And here we are in, you know, 2008, and I've got a monthly residency or DJing for a thousand people every month in DC and New York is every two months now. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's not what I expected at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The melodic elements though uh, are still very much a part of your music and one of the things I'm hearing in District Line is this just real attention to song craft. Choruses you could sing mm-hmm. in the shower three weeks later, they're yep. still humming around your head. Um, and, and the melodic element, that was always there. Those Husker Du records were incredibly melodic. Some people said, you know, you take all the white static off and you've got a great pop song, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, the, at the base of it. So somewhere in there, you know, 70s AM radio <laughs> must have been seeping into the consciousness as well as this, you know, this hardcore anger about, you know, destroy all music. But, mm-hmm. you know, the melody was always there. You miss, I mean, you were in two powerhouse bands, trios, and you've toured occasionally with groups of musicians Mm -hmm. in the past. Is it something you miss being in a band? I mean, I know it's like being married to a bunch of guys at the same time, uh, but is it a situation you could ever see yourself in again? Um, Like a real band project? I don't know. But but I know what you mean as far as like creatively, you know, working with with Rich Morell on the blow-off project, you know, we made a record in the fall of 06, and that it's a shame that more people didn't get to hear that record record because that's a real 50-50 collaboration, and I haven't done that before. Mm-hmm. You know, even with Hooskers, it was, you know, people were in their own corners writing songs, and, you know, when I brought a song in, the drum sounded one way. When a song got brought into me, the guitar sounded a certain way. And working with Rich, there was a lot of variety and, and a, lot of, a lot of back and forth and a lot of give and take on composition and on, you know, on production. So I guess I find it in other ways... But I think the mechanics at this age, uh, the mechanics of actually having a band band, you know, like the the snotty brats or something, it would be sort of, it would be really hard to keep the snotty brats together when the snotty brats are having snotty brats. Well, it also (laughs) seems, uh, Bob, that that you're interested in other things now, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, for people who don't know, there was some time you spent writing wrestling scripts. Yep. Uh, You you were doing an advice column in D.C., right? Yeah. um, Yeah, Washington City Paper had me for about eight months doing a column called Ask Bob, and it was... uh, <laughs> um, it was nice. It was a big free advertisement every week, and yeah. I was and I was dishing out like half baked advice. So uh-huh. was, uh-huh. Well, um, and now you're blogging prolifically. Yeah, there was the, something about your Christmas dinner was on the blog. Yeah, around the holidays. talking about that. <laughs> talking about the talking about the beef tenderloin. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, my life has changed a lot. You know, I 
for many, many years, placed work above everything, above my health and above my friends. Now that I've turned that upside down, I actually enjoy my work a lot more. Now that my priorities in life are, are taking care of myself and taking care of my friends, mm. somehow it seems that the, the, the work has improved or at least become more enjoyable for me. But we're, we're not getting the warm, fuzzy Bob songs. Uh, they're still, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've this, read this from you, Bob, On this record, too. I thought the silence between us was about as happy as it gets. Yeah. Well, generally, still. I mean, that song again and again. It, yeah, just play. I mean, that's, you know, okay, there's there's still some tension there, and, and, oh, and, yeah. there, and there's turmoil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that was is most inspiring to you as a songwriter, turmoil, as opposed to stability and... And happy feelings. You know, well, black sheets of rain. Yeah. Black <laughs> sheets of rain, yes. That's a, that's a tumultuous record. It, uh, this record is a nice mesh of autobiographical and observational. In D.C., I have a, a very small life these days, and I have like a group of friends, and we, you know, we commiserate regularly about things that are happening in our lives. And I see things that happen to my friends, and I have empathy, and I'm careful to say, well, you'll be fine. This, uh, everything passes, you know. You know, what, you know what the upside is? You're going to be better for this after it's over. And uh, maybe that's the optimism in this record to me is that it, with all of this, you know, turmoil and missed connections and, you know, failed relationships and, and whatnot. I mean, that's that's life. I mean, that's we all go through that on a daily basis. And and maybe now it's not so self-centered. It's not so much the why is this happening to me as much as the why is this happening? Mm. I think that's where I'm coming from as a writer these days. I just I think we ought to have Bob do a regular advice segment on Sound Opinion. Oh sure, ask yes, Uncle Bob. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> can you give us one more, Bob? Yeah, I can do one more. What do you guys want? You want like a Husker thing? Something faster, maybe? A little, Would that little, be little horribly indulgent of us uh, to ask for that? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, we could do that. Let me see what I can. Uh... How about I apologize? All right. Crazy mixed up lies Floating all around Making these assumptions Brings me down Now You get silent How to wanna what you think now Was there something I said When I lost my mind My temperature quick Makes me blind I apologize uh, yeah. Don't do anything at all 
check out the garbage. Maybe put the dishes don't get done now. This is something I said when I lost my mind. My temper too quick makes me blind. I apologize. Thank you. Now, no exaggeration to say that when the line is drawn between Sheena is a punk rocker and smells like teen spirit, that's the song in the middle that's missing. Yeah. Whoa. We don't get from <laughs> A to B right to me. Or maybe, maybe you know, Heaven Hill, maybe, or there, or Pink Turns to Blue. There's or a lot of good ones in there. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions. You're always welcome. Thank you, guys. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I know that you want the candy. 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 Give me candy I've never had. To so sweet mixed with that Sweet, sweet lips. The taste of you tonight. That is a song 
called You Want the Candy by the Ravenettes. They are a uh, duo, Greg, originally from Copenhagen, Denmark. Soon, Ross Wagner on guitar and vocals and Sharon Fu on bass and vocals. It sounds a lot like they are doing a second-person rewrite or answer song to Bow Wow Wow's I Want Candy, <laughs> yeah. but it sounds even more like Just Like Honey by the Jesus and Mary Chain. <laughs> Indeed, the Ravenettes have pretty much made a career out of sounding just like the Jesus and Mary Chain. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'll save to the review portion. This is their third Third album, Lust, Lust, Lust. The last one uh, was getting very slick, according to a lot of people. I think Richard Goddard was working on it yeah. of uh, Blondie fame and the Go-Go's. Now they've taken the reins themselves with Wagner doing a lot of the production. Here comes this record. Let's play a track from it and talk about it. It's uh, getting a lot of attention in the indie rock underground. This is a song called Alley Walk With Me, which leads the album and is the first single by the Ravenettes on Sound Opinions. Walk With Me from the new Ravenettes record called Lust, Lust, Lust. And uh, that title alone should tell you where they're coming from in terms of the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very pulp fiction. We have the lovers waking up in the morning, and then I leave you and you're going to die, 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 as yeah, one of the yeah, songs yeah. says. Let's face it, Jim. If you like the Jesus and Mary Jane, you're probably going to like the Ravenettes. <laughs> yeah. And by that, I mean they're going to combine that heavy feedback-drenched guitar with these melodies straight out of Phil Spector and the Runettes of the early 60s, combining that girl group sound with the soaring melodies, the soaring vocals, with heavy, heavy guitars. Yeah, Velvet Underground meets Phil Spector. Yes, uh, they did veer away from that very minimalist sound on their last record, not to good effect. Their first 
EP was famously written with just three chords and entirely in B flat. Their <laughs> second record was three chords and written entirely in B major. Why use any more? I don't <laughs> exactly. know. Exactly. So they like their minimalism. They like to strip it down. I think uh, Soon Rose Wagner is an interesting guitar player because he understands the value of not overplaying. And when he does bring it in, uh, he has that spaghetti western reverb going or that sort of washing machine overdrive on the, on, on the guitar. It's a great sound. If you love that meld of noise and melody, they do it about as well as anyone. She's got that deadpan vocal. Yeah. You can't tell whether she's excited or not about the particular song. And I have to say, Jim, one or two songs of this stuff goes a long way. Well, Over a dozen tracks, it gets a little bit samey. But l- listen, you know, I mean, it's different filters. People make fun of rock critics all the time, right? And just because they're ripping off something we love, which is to say the Jesus yeah. and Mary Chain, who, of course, ripped off something we loved even more, which was the Velvet Underground, sure. you know, are we falling into this trap? Maxim Magazine just got a lot of attention and in a lot of trouble, <laughs> at least uh, credibility-wise, for daring to review the new Black Crows album without actually ever listening to it. You know, but it's <laughs> It's not much of a leap to say that Black Crows sound a lot like the small faces. Everything yeah. they've ever done has done that. We give them a hard time for it, but are we giving the Ravenettes a pass? I don't know. I'd still rather, I guess at the end of the day, when I want to hear something like this, sexy, slinky, feedback-drenched garage rock, I'm going to go to the Jesus and Mary chain. Yeah. Why should I go to the Ravenettes? I don't know if I ever need this album, even though I really like this sound. i got to say, if I'm totally honest here, you know, cash on the barrel head, would I buy it? No way. I don't even think I'd burn it. i got to say it's a trash it. I don't think it's a trash because there are a few songs on here that I really like a lot, including that Alley Walk With Me, so I'm going to say Burn It. That's a Burn It from Greg Cott and a Trash It from me, if I have to be completely honest. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, very exciting guest, Jim Butchvig, one of the great producers of the last 20 years. In addition to being in the band Garbage, he produced Sonic Youth, he produced Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins. We're going to get the story behind all of those bands. Well, people, you know, we throw around words like producers, and people write us and say, what exactly does a producer do? And we couldn't think of a better guy to answer that question than one of the guys who's produced some of the best records in the last couple of years. Speaking of producers, all of the good things about Sound Opinions come from Todd Bachman, Jason Zaldana, and Robin Lynn, and you and I do the but we do get some help from Southside Tori Malatia, our executive producer and fearless leader, who I heard for some time was a groupie for the Dave Clark Five. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
don't want to hear about it. I don't know who wants to hear about it. So dig a little deeper. Uh, there's a lot of amazing stuff out there. And all my favorite stuff that's coming out these days, I very rarely hear you guys mention. All right. Thanks, guys. I'm Ellison from Raleigh, North Carolina. I just wanted to comment on the review of Sia's album, Some People Have Real Problems. Um, I just purchased that album, and I have played it over and over. I really like it. I think it's got a great variety of um, songs, and it does not put me to sleep whatsoever. I really enjoyed it, and I would tell people to buy it. Thank you. Bye. Someone played you in, and sadly they clipped your wings you can't fly where electric bird yeah someone took your tree when they fed you that bad seed you can't fly where electric bird well you're from Minneapolis. Um, I got into the show a few months ago, and like most, I went and downloaded loads of previous shows, and I loved it. Um, but after hearing maybe 30 or 40 shows, I noticed a trend that started to concern me, which is that despite hearing all this talk about how you guys don't always agree, I not once heard a review in which either Jim or Greg gave it a buy it, and the other gave it a trash it. So logically enough, I drafted a somewhat articulate and rather long-winded response to the injustice that you do by never at least completely disagreeing on a record. And sure enough, I'm all ready to let you guys have it. And this week's steer review, you do just that. They buy it and trash it. This is sort of a tarted-up pop record that just isn't very good. It puts me to sleep. <laughs> uh, and i got to say, it's, it, is, it is hands down. One of the worst album covers we have what, ever now, seen. What are you reviewing the album cover for? Let's start with the album cover because that is really bad. The now, music you, inside uh, has got to be really good to make up for this album cover, and it's not. I don't critique the way you dress over She's here, draw- Mr. Sloppy. drawing with magic marker on her face. Oh, who you know? cares? I mean, who it's, cares? It's, it's awful. Look, that is the last refuge of the critic who has nothing to say, <laughs> okay? I'm disinclined to like anything that that coffee chain that will not be named wants to sell me besides coffee, but... This album won me over, Greg, and I think you're not being fair to it at all. Uh, I think I'm being very fair to it. I think it's a very affected record in a lot of ways. The children's chorus in that first single, the uh, Little Black Sandal song, you gotta annoying. Love a chorus. What a Come gimmick. You know, what the, big you horn, the big horn fan, fanfare yeah, and electric horn. bird. No, horn. no. It's, it, it's, it's overdone, overproduced I'm, I'm for giving, not very good song. I am giving Sia's record a buy it. I like this record. Boring, boring record. Trash it. So thank you for saving us all the trouble by long-winded critique of a show that is so important to the universe of music. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.